my God, Holy dude. Oh, my God. A hail of bullets in Saanich as dozens of officers respond to an attempted bank robbery late this morning. Six officers were shot, two suspects killed in a shocking gun battle. Nearby residents told us still shelter in place while police search for a third possible suspect. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Two stories dominating our coverage tonight. That shootout in Saanich, of course, plus Premier John Horgan announcing he'll be stepping down in the fall, paving the way for a leadership convention. We'll have more on his announcement and the political repercussions coming up. But first, a terrifying day in Saanich, and it is not over yet as police continue to search for another possible suspect. Kylie Stanton is live with more on this devastating story. Six officers shot Kylie, an unbelievable scene that unfolded in broad daylight. Yeah, that's right, Chris. You can see just by the sheer amount of police tape behind me just how serious this situation was. Police now calling it a very difficult and dark day for officers. Oh my God, Holy dude. Shots are fired one after another. As officers surround this bank, witnesses take cover. I think we're all feeling pretty shaken. We're in a lot of shock. It sounded like fireworks, but it just kept going. My coworker and I just looked at each other and went, was that actually a gunshot? So we went up to the windows to see what's up and you could see people, you know, kneeling behind their cars and then all the police presence. It was just after 11 o'clock Tuesday morning when two armed suspects entered the BMO bank at the corner of Shelbourne and Pear Street. You could tell that they were trying to conceal who they were um, and they maybe were wearing ski jackets like it was very makeshift. Um, they, they just didn't want to be seen. They definitely had weapons and they were large. Like It was like a larger gun is what I saw. When police arrived on scene, the suspects fired at the officers but were ultimately shot and died at the scene. At this time, we do not believe that any bank employees, bank customers, or members of the public were physically injured in this incident. The shootout left six officers with the Greater Victoria Emergency Response Team with gunshot wounds. Three from the Police Department, three from Victoria. They were transported to the Royal Jubilee Hospital for emergency treatment. Two with serious injuries are undergoing surgery. The others that are undergoing surgery right now obviously have much more serious injuries. And at this point, I, I just can't comment on the, the extent or nature of them because it's ongoing. Our thoughts are, are with uh, you know, the police uh, who are dealing with a very uh, difficult uh, situation and uh, showing what a, a, you know, a dangerous job policing can be at times. No one inside the bank or the surrounding area was injured in the incident, but homes and businesses here have been evacuated due to the presence of a potential explosive device in the suspect's vehicle. The search for a possible third suspect, still at large, is also underway. Things uh, looked after, uh, and also uh, there's a, there is a potential third suspect, so this is ongoing and, and many, there's many parts that are still in motion right now. The investigation is ongoing, but it will be a long time before the officers and the community they serve recovers from this incident. This is something that shakes a community. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Saanich. All right, Kylie, just in the last few minutes, it sounds like there was an update on that search for a possible third suspect. Do you have new information? 
Yeah, actually, some good news. Uh, Sandwich PD just tweeted out that the shelter-in-place order has been lifted for this area. There is no further indication of a third suspect. But the, as you can see, obviously, still a very active scene. Officers here were waiting for the explosive disposal unit from Vancouver to arrive. It came at about 5.30. You can see behind me they are working on that explosive device. I should say a potential explosive device that was found uh, in the suspect's vehicle. So uh, you can see they're working on that. It's is expected to take several hours and we're going to remain here on scene uh, to see uh, what happens next next and bring you the latest. Chris? All right. Yeah, we'll check back in with you. Thanks very much, Kylie. All right. To today's other major story, uh, Premier John Horgan putting to rest the speculation about his political future and announcing today he is stepping down. Horgan saying it wasn't an easy decision to make, and although he loves the job, his latest battle with cancer has left him unable to commit to another six years. Richard Zussman reports. A tearful goodbye. I'm not able to make another six-year commitment to this job. Premier John Horgan will be stepping down as Premier this fall, asking the BC NDP to launch a leadership race to appoint his successor. This has been uh, the thrill of my life to be the Premier of British Columbia, and I will be the Premier of British Columbia tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. There has been endless speculation as a result of my, my recent uh, battle with cancer about what my plans would be. I want to put the speculation to rest. Putting it to rest after pressure has been growing for months on Horgan to make a decision, even though he's cancer-free, battling the disease has worn him down. I had made my decision uh, when Ellie and I uh, were walking on the beach, uh, uh, laughing and reflecting on uh, how many beaches we'd walked on in our lives. Horgan leaving as the longest-serving NDP Premier in history, a jam-packed five-year term, including passing UNDRIP legislation, overhauling ICBC, leading the province through the COVID-19 pandemic and addressing affordability issues like building transit, housing and childcare spaces. How rare is that? That a politician leaving while they're still popular. I mean, it's unheard of. Um, and I think it's a measure of, uh, of the man. I mean, he's more popular today than when he got elected the first time. That first win coming in 2017 with the support of the BC Greens, signing an historic confidence and supply agreement to form the first NDP government in 16 years. When we look back upon the uh, leadership in our province since 2017, uh, his legacy will be judged with, uh, you know, very positively. The now 62-year-old dropping tolls on the Portman Bridge, pledging support for the Sightsee Dam and LNG Canada's Kitimat project, romping to victory in the 2020 election, winning seats the NDP had never had much success in. And I feel grateful to be his friend uh, because I think the press conference today and his announcement was very typical of John. Uh, you know, he takes a look at all the things that need to be taken care of. Now Horgan focusing on taking care of himself and planning many more walks on those beaches when he finally leaves and that new premier is in place. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry to talk a little more about this. John Horgan talked about making way for the next generation. Keith, so who are the names that come to mind to uh, replace him as leader? 
Yeah, I let the guessing games begin. This is uh, we've had a number of leadership races for both parties over the years. Uh, and I expect a fairly crowded field, about a uh, half dozen or so. Here's just some names randomly chosen. I haven't talked to any of them, but these are the names that have been kicked around. David Eby, the former attorney, or the current attorney general. Ravi Kalan, the current jobs minister. Uh, Josie Osborne, former mayor of Tofino, whose name I've heard a lot about with the new portfolio of land, water, and resource stewardship. Bowen Ma from North, Van, North Vancouver Lonsdale, an up-and-comer political star. Uh, she's the minister of state for uh, infrastructure. And I put this one in, Brad West, the up-and-comer Comer, up and coming and personable mayor for Port Coquitlam. I wouldn't be surprised if he were to step in, particularly if Mike Farnworth doesn't seek re-election in that seat of Port Coquitlam. So that's just five names, five faces. There's going to be other names kicked around. Sophie, uh, leadership races uh, go in strange ways sometimes. I don't expect this one to really get going, though, until the fall. John Horgan will remain premier for a number of months now. Uh, we've got municipal elections coming up in the fall. I expect the leadership vote to, be, to take place after the municipal elections, which means we could be looking at October, November for a new premier. So John Horgan's still around for quite a while. All right, Keith, uh, we'll see how the next few months unfold. Thanks. Many British Columbians are sticking pretty close to home for their summer vacations this year, hoping to keep expenses down. Inflation is making it very difficult to pay the bills. Still, as Kamal Kuramali shows us, some are getting creative in order to get their road trip fixed. A summer with loosened COVID restrictions, music to this couple's ears. It is officially the summer of the BC road trip uh, this year. But with travel costs surging, they've had to get a little creative. This is a great old Westphalia. It's got everything we need. Using this van as their hotel room for them and their two daughters. We also stay with families and, and friends. And we have a kitchen, so we make our own meals. So I'm playing some shows and that makes a few bucks. They're one of many families hitting the road now that the floodgates have opened. I don't think any of us expected that it was gonna be this intense this quickly. The higher demand has meant higher costs. Tourism experts say hotel rates have gone back to pre-pandemic levels and in some cases cost even more. As their occupancy increases, as does the rate for the, the remaining rooms. So if you're a last-minute booker, you're going to be looking to pay quite a bit of money to get a room. This Saturday, many hotel rooms in Whistler are hovering around 400 bucks a night, some even inching past two grand. In Kelowna, some are also costing four to $700 a night. And in Victoria, limited availability, with rooms that are still vacant going for hundreds. We've seen visitation numbers to those retail corridors uh, surpassed what they were pre-pandemic at this point, especially on weekends. Industry experts say the labor shortage is also driving up travel costs. Businesses have had to pay more to attract employees. Supply chain issues and inflation also mean the tourism industry is paying a bit more for basic goods. All of those extra costs being passed along to the consumer. So just be prepared to budget a little bit more. It can't be understated the amount of devastation that happened within our industry in the last couple of years. And while I don't want to focus on that, we've got to start to rebuild from that. And there is a cost to do so. A cost many families are willing to pay to get back to a normal summer. Kamal Karamali, Global News. Amazing. Well, surging gas prices, as you saw in Kamal's report, are fueling concerns for Canadian drivers prompting some to cancel their summer travel plans altogether. Many face financial hardship that's even more severe. Based on Ipsos polling exclusively for Global News, 
Nearly 70% worry they might not be able to afford gas. That number is 80% for parents of young children and nearly 8 in 10 young workers aged 18 to 34. 77% are driving fewer long-distance trips, and about half say they can't afford to fully fill up their gas tank. Well, huge lineups and seething frustration have become the norm at passport offices across B.C. in recent weeks. Officials blaming pandemic backlog and staffing shortages, which begs the question, why are other countries not facing the same issues? As Aaron MacArthur reports, other nations have streamlined the process by going online. Despite new triage measures implemented this week, the line outside the Surrey Passport Office stretched again out to the King George Boulevard Tuesday morning. How far have you moved in three hours? From Caltire to here. <laughs> People at the end of this line traveling in July and August, but not wanting to leave things to the last minute, choosing to waste a day trying to get a passport. Are you confident you're going to get a passport by the uh, I guess so. I hope so. <laughs> what have they told you? Yeah, just uh, nothing really. We've just been sitting. Terrible. Terrible. Compare that to Rory Spillane, who renewed his passport in 15 days. Yeah, the new online process is very, very quick. The Irish-Canadian dual citizen simply logged on to the Irish government website and 10 minutes later had uploaded his photos, updated his address, and paid with a credit card. The document on his doorstep two weeks later, zero hassle. Yes, it's definitely something we got right. Um, so it just makes sense. With the pandemic coming, I think they just facilitated an online process for all of their citizens. The Canadian government announced streamlined applications to help speed up the backlog, but a jump to online applications isn't happening anytime soon. In a statement, the government says it contracted IBM in 2020 to develop a digital application process so Canadians can pay fees and upload photos securely. But that project is still in a pilot phase, and there's no timeline for a wider-scale rollout. People in line in Surrey Tuesday just want someone to help them as soon as possible. I don't know what, what is happening. This is not a Canada. Any decision on improvements to the system guided by a new task force appointed by the Prime Minister. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Now, the federal cabinet minister taking the lead on the government's task force to address passport delays says she's looking to make quick changes to reduce long waits. For weeks now, Canadians have been lining up, as you saw, outside Service Canada offices to apply for those travel documents. The prime minister responded Saturday by launching the Services to Canadians Task Force. Marcy Ian is co-chair of the task force and says she's addressing the issue with urgency. I don't know about completion, uh, but I would be a very happy camper, and I know my colleagues would be, um, if we, we had something tangible in, in the next several weeks. She says she's listening to those who were previously on this file and collecting data before putting forward a solution. The task force is made up of around a dozen cabinet ministers and will look for short and long-term solutions to address backlogs in passport and immigration applications, as well as delays at airports. That controversial social housing tower planned for Kitsilano neighborhood goes before Vancouver City Council tonight in a public hearing. As Madagahi reports, there's no shortage of people who want to have their say. 
The community is concerned that this park will be lost. Sitting at the corner of Arbutus and 7th Avenue in Kitsilano, the site of perhaps the last and one of the most controversial social housing decisions before Vancouver's outgoing city council. Individuals that live in the immediate vicinity of this project have concerns about uh, safety. Karen Finnan speaks for the Kitsilano Coalition an organized community effort to oppose a 13-story social housing tower that in its current form offers 129 units, 50% of those to people currently homeless and on income assistance, and 50% what's called deeply affordable for those with incomes between fifteen dollars to $30,000 per year. What our concern is is the number of folks that are proposed to be housed here. Housing people altogether is markedly inferior to providing them with what's referred to as recovery-oriented housing. And that means housing not only with supports, but housing that is dispersed in and amongst other buildings. The building is proposed for city land. Funding it will be the province through BC Housing. David Eby, the minister in charge, says it's not uncommon for residents of any neighbourhood to be concerned about an incoming social housing project. I'm hopeful that we can address these concerns and and generally we find uh, after they've been open for a few months and, and things settled out at the site that people don't notice uh, the buildings. They, they really blend in nicely. And uh, there are obviously some exceptions to that. People are dying due to a lack of housing. Uh, so councillors have a responsibility to save people's lives by approving this initiative. More than 900 people have already written to city council ahead of a public hearing. The large majority opposed to the tower in its current form. I think that a housing project that would perhaps be a bit smaller in scale so that it would fit in better with the neighborhood and being so close to the school and the, the playground. Amadagahi, Global News. The high cost of housing isn't just a Metro Vancouver problem. Many renters and buyers are now finding themselves priced out of the market in the central Okanagan as well forcing some to pack up and move on where they're going and how climbing costs are changing the community. Next on the news hour. Every single donation impacts the health and well-being of thousands of people. The shortage no one saw coming. Why some medical schools, including UBC, are running low on a key teaching tool later. Also coming up, a permanent home for Vancouver's glowing past reviving the city's neon heritage and the iconic signs you may have never seen. That's also coming up later. Right now, though, it is no secret that Kelowna is a pricey place to live, and some families are finding it too pricey to stay. That's right. They feel their best option is to pack up and move away. And as Claudia Van Emmerich reports, that comes with some major consequences for the communities they're leaving behind. Bittersweet emotions as Laura Wilson packs up her rental home in Kelowna. It's sad, actually, that people have to uproot their children and their whole lives and leave a community. But that's exactly what Wilson, her husband and two children have been forced to do, leave the central Okanagan due to the skyrocketing costs of housing. So they're moving to Edmonton, where they've purchased a townhouse at a fraction of what it would cost here. We paid $172,000, which is cheap in the Okanagan, you can't even buy a one-bedroom condo in Kelowna for that price. In Kelowna, the benchmark price for a single-family home is around $1.1 million, while the median price for a two-bedroom rental is 2300 a month. 
Kelowna and the Okanagan have been one of the places over the past couple of years where uh, prices have uh, gotten out of control. Driving people away, something senior economists with the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives say is not good for any community. It means that our communities are becoming more exclusionary uh, based on income and wealth. And you know, that's that's no way to organize the city. Hemingway says the solutions must include a massive expansion of investment in public and not-for-profit dedicated affordable housing, but also some leniency on the part of municipal governments. In most of our cities, uh, apartments are, are not allowed to be built on most of the residential know that's the most affordable type of housing that exists today. That drives up uh, the price of the land. Well, Wilson says she'll miss the Okanagan and everything it has to offer. She's looking forward to more disposable income every month. Oh, a lot more. Um, I think at the end of my budget, it looks like we'll have about a $700 surplus. Lessening the financial burden of living in one of the most desirable places in Canada. Claudia Van Emmer, Global News, Kelowna. And the shortage of long-term rental housing is prompting another B.C. tourist destination to attempt to regulate short-term rentals. Vernon wants to require licenses for short-term rentals. A minor license would allow an owner to rent out only part of their property and require them to also live there. A major license would allow the entire home to be rented, but only in certain parts of the city. Vernon has a long-term vacancy rate of just 0.7% and 274 short-term rentals on VRBO and Airbnb alone. I do uh, agree that people use these uh, rentals for, you know, mortgage helpers, et cetera, et cetera, allow them to have, you know, make money off their their investment. And I totally understand that. But I do believe, um, you know, the, the, the proof is in the history here that we need control of it and we need to be able to manage it as a municipality. The rent is very high in this town. Like $1,000 is the cheapest you can get for a rent, I think. So two opinions on it. You don't want them in your neighborhood. At the same time, when you travel, you like to use them. The city plans to work out the details of the new regulations and seek more feedback through public hearings in the coming months before the new rules are finalized. Coming up, eating local in the era of inflation. How farm-to-table grocery shopping might not cost as much as you think. Also tonight, a question of identity. What one witness says about the evidence he uncovered in the Amanda Todd harassment and sexploitation trial. Traffic is starting to ease off now at the Botello Bridge after clearing two different problems. Still a bit slow southbound on McBride through the Queen's Park stretch as well as on the Columbia on-ramp. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $70 million plus an estimated 14 max millions. Lotto Max, dream to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. The special stories that shape our province, as suggested by our viewers. This is BC with Jay Durant. Real people, real stories. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways, BC owned and operated for 75 years. Eating local is not necessarily more expensive. That's according to a new study, which suggests while Canadians consider local food items to be important, they also believe them to be more costly. 
Consumer Matters reporter Andrew joins us now with more on the findings of this study. And thanks, Chris. Dalhousie University's Agri-Food Lab and Angus Reid surveyed more than 1,500 Canadians earlier this month on local food perceptions. The results show only 5% of Canadians believe local foods are cheaper. In B.C., the affordability numbers are much lower, even though consumers are prioritizing local foods when grocery shopping. 84% of British Columbians surveyed felt it was either essential, very or somewhat important, that products are local at the grocery store. 17% of respondents will choose local products for most or 10 or more of their meals every week, while 32% said between four to nine meals in a typical week include local foods. The majority of those surveyed, or 34%, said they buy local foods to support local farmers. 30% want to support the local economy, and supporting environmental sustainability was the third choice at 15%. But only 2% of British Columbians felt local foods were more affordable. I think we need to debunk that myth, and this is why we coupled our survey with a study we just did with Quebec. We realized after investigating over 400 products that local foods in Quebec are actually quite competitive. Generally speaking, local foods can be as competitive, uh, competitively priced, than uh, products coming from abroad. Once you actually build economies of scale, encourage and, and you encourage citizens to actually buy local foods, you end up creative leveraging competitiveness. Charbois also says over the years in Quebec, the province has promoted local foods and has certified almost 25,000 products manufactured in Quebec. He recommends British Columbians be more vigilant in weighing the costs of local food. With high inflation, consumers are already more frugal when buying groceries and might as well broaden their scope and include local foods when shopping around. BC's Agriculture and Food Ministry says almost 900 companies and more than 3,200 products are now eligible to add the Buy BC's logo to their products. The province says it's also committed to making it easier for consumers to identify identify rather made in BC products. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Very good. All right. Thanks very much, Ann. And just ahead, we continue to follow up on the tragedy in Saanich. The latest development says families wait for word on the health of police critically injured in a hail of bullets. Also ahead, remembering Noel Osoup, a teenager whose life came to a tragic end a long way from family who loved her. Still slow for eastbound traffic along Highway 1 through Vancouver and Burnaby after clearing a few earlier problems. Anticipate delays mainly at merge points like Willingdon and Kensington. Today's Lotto Max jackpot is an estimated $70 million plus an estimated 14 max millions. Lotto Max streamed to the max. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. And returning to our top story now, the latest developments in a deadly shooting on Vancouver Island. Police were called to an armed robbery at a Saanich bank late this morning when gunfire erupted. Kylie Stanton joins us once again with the latest on what happened. Uh, Kylie, we know six officers went to hospital with gunshot wounds. Two suspects are dead. Police have been on the scene uh, since it began and there was a shelter in place for uh, most of the afternoon. What's the latest? 
Well, Sophie, as of about six o'clock, that shelter in place order that, like you said, remained in effect for the better part of the day was finally lifted. The good news, there is no indication of a third suspect involved in this armed robbery that happened at about 11 o'clock this morning in the 3600 block of Shelbourne Street. Now take a look at some of this video. It is quite graphic and uh, shocking to see. Now, police were called to this uh, BMO bank on the corner of Shelbourne and Pear just after 11 o'clock this morning. There was an exchange of gunfire and multiple people were injured. Uh, as mentioned, six officers were shot, some seriously injured, two suspects were shot and died at the scene. Now, those injured have been taken to hospital for treatment. Uh, many of their fellow officers stationed outside, but the investigation is ongoing. This uh, whole street has been evacuated. Businesses shut down residents in the area uh, told to stay put as a potential explosive device inside the suspect's vehicle continues to be worked on. This remains an ongoing police incident with heavy police presence in the area. Homes and businesses in close proximity to the scene of the incident have been evacuated due to the presence of a potential explosive device in a vehicle that has been confirmed associated to the suspects. Now you can see behind me that uh, the explosive uh, disposal unit from Vancouver has arrived. They arrived at about 5.30 this evening. They're working on this. It is expected to take several hours. Uh, we are learning more about the victims that were injured, the, the officers. Uh, many of them taken to hospital, all six of them. Some are expected to be released shortly after receiving emergency treatment, but others more seriously injured are expected to uh, be undergoing surgery and we hope to have more information on their conditions uh, sometime tomorrow. Wishing the best for them. All right, thanks for that. Kylie Stanton reporting in Saanich for us. Now to the trial of the Dutch man accused of harassing B.C. teenager Amanda Todd before she took her own life 10 years ago. Court heard from a former police and data expert who specialized in online crimes against children. Ramina Dea reports. There is no question 15-year-old Amanda Todd was the victim of crimes. But who was behind the online sextortion? Identity is at the epicenter of this case. Data analyst Warren Bulmer, who now works for the Australian Federal Police, spent 30 years with the Toronto Police Service. He specialized in online crimes against children. Bulmer examined an account in the name of Amanda Todd and did a deep dive into 13 Facebook records. He told the jury multiple links between accounts were uncovered, including the same device, the same internet service and VPN used to hide a user's true identity. One example, Bulmer said he found 22 unique IP addresses associated to the Alice McAllister account. Previously, the jury heard this Facebook account sent a link with pornographic images of Amanda Todd to her family. Crown is trying to prove the accused 44-year-old Dutch citizen Aidan Coban was behind 22 fake social media accounts used to sexually blackmail Amanda Todd before she killed herself in Port Coquitlam a decade ago. We are in week four of this seven-week trial. Defense has yet to make opening arguments. Coban has pleaded not guilty to all five charges, 
including possession of child pornography and criminal harassment. Romina Dea, Global News. A vigil is being held this evening for Noelle Ellie Osoup, the 14-year-old Indigenous girl from the key First Nation in Saskatchewan, was missing for more than a year before her body was found last month in a building in the downtown east side. Krista Dow reports. It is something no parent should ever have to experience, but this nightmare a painful reality. This family now mourning the loss of their daughter, Noelle Ellie Osoup. The family arriving from the key First Nation in Saskatchewan to attend a vigil Tuesday night to remember a life taken too soon. My heart is absolutely broken knowing that we lost a child of our family that we love. It's just heartbreaking for us to have to to be here to, uh, to try to make sense of what happened. Family members describe the 14-year-old as a positive ray of light and one who always looked out for others. She was great, full of life, the best. So vibrant, honestly, and so happy. And like, she would always make sure that we're always at ease. The poor Coquitlam girl had been missing for more than a year. Vancouver police say her body and the body of another person were discovered on May 1st at this apartment building where a small memorial continues to grow. Her family pointing the finger at the Ministry of Children and Family Development along with Vancouver police. MCFD has failed our family. They failed Noelle. They, she deserved better. She was in the care of them when this happened. The VPD has also failed our family. Her cause of death still to be determined. Vancouver police say it remains an active and ongoing investigation and are limited in what they can share. Noelle's family, though, vowing to never give up. We hope for justice for her. We will get justice for her. Krista Dow, Global News. They are used for research and provide invaluable lessons for medical students, but UBC says a shortage of donated cadavers is hitting its medical program hard. For the first time in seven decades, donations are dwindling. And as Grace Key reports, universities say critical learning is at stake. These are plastinated specimens that um, individuals decided that they would donate their bodies in perpetuity. Dr. Edwin Moore oversees the body donation program in the Faculty of Medicine at UBC. Since the program began in 1950, they've received about 80 to 120 donations a year. Now they're running at about 50 to 60 percent of that. Because all of these healthcare professionals will be practicing for the next 30 or 40 years, and they have to access that anatomical information every day of their lives. Every single donation impacts the health and well-being of thousands of people in the coming years. Students from medicine, dentistry, physical and occupational therapy, midwifery, and biomedical engineering all benefit from the generous donations. We also have surgeons that will come into the laboratory to practice something new or to learn a new technique prior to taking it into the operating theater, or if they have a difficult patient where the normal approach might not work, they can try something new in the, in the gross anatomy laboratory prior to taking it into the theater. We also have biomedical engineers who will be testing new devices, looking to see how to implant new devices into the body. And all of this takes place every year. It's not just a lesson in anatomy, but also compassion. For students, it's their first patient. It's your first time where you have to show a great deal of respect for this individual um, and 
you know, make incisions. And, and it's not just about the anatomy. It's about how do you pay the appropriate respect to, to these donations and to our future patients as well. The body donation program was suspended temporarily during the pandemic. They are now fully back up and running and taking donations. You can learn more on the UBC Body Program website. Grace Key, Global News. Just ahead, a bright future for forgotten signs. I can't wait to see a lot of the the light shine into the streets again. The team reviving Vancouver's neon history. And coming up in sports, the Hockey Hall of Fame induction that's twice as nice. How the Sedins achieve greatness always together. Let's talk about summer being nice while it lasted. Yeah, those three days were great. Oh, what a difference a day makes. <laughs> yep. What a difference a day makes. A bit of a reprieve from the heat, but it is going to rebound just in time for the long weekend. I'll have more on that coming up in just a moment. Thanks, guys, and good evening, everyone. We've had a few spotty showers pick up even within the last hour. We're currently sitting at 16, and we've got cloud cover report out of the airport. We've got a wave even working its way in towards the Fraser Valley, eastern regions, but it is going to pick up once again. We do have some wet weather and active weather that is still in store for the central interior from Prince George all the way into Williams Lake. We do have a severe thunderstorm watch that remains in effect. We could see that pick up and heavy rain will be a big concern. Overnight tonight though, Metro Vancouver, we're down to four showers, a chance for tomorrow, a fair bit of cloud cover in the mix and temperatures at 18. Quinell River still underneath the flood warning will exceed Bankful in the Thompson and South Thompson underneath that flood watch. A few isolated thunderstorms for the northeastern corners, similar for the southeastern regions across the province. A gray and cooler day for tomorrow across Metro Vancouver. We've got temperatures at 18, but it rebounds just in time for the weekend. It'll be summer-like once again. Friday to kick things up, areas away from the water up to 27 degrees. All right, tonight's weather window capturing the storm that rolled through Kamloops. If you look very closely, we've got a thunderstorm just right in there. Thank you so much, Sue, for capturing that one. A lightning strike, rather. Yeah, bolt. Let's hope it doesn't start a fire. Thanks, Yvonne. All right, Squire is here. More on the Twins and their accomplishments. They talked today. They said they never really thought about the Hall of Fame after they retired. When we got the call yesterday, it's always a big, uh, big honour. But they realized that this spot in the Hall of Fame came about mainly because the Canucks helped them play their entire career together. Better together for sure. Also, Bright Lights Big City flipping the switch on a colourful part of Vancouver's history. They were a package deal, Squire. And a pretty good package deal at that, yes. Um, the Sedins did everything together in their hockey career. You never saw one without the other. It was like two players with one big brain between them. And it's safe to say they are in the Hockey Hall of Fame because they did get to play together. They would have been very good players on different teams, but not reach the heights they did by playing on the same team. Strangely, we'll, we've done everything together and and because of the Canucks drafted us uh, in '99 and and kept us together, it's uh, like we. Uh, I mean, I don't think we would be sitting here if we wouldn't have played together for this long. Uh, so, and, and like Danny said, we we really push each other to become the best, and that's. Uh, uh, it might have been tough if we would have been drafted by different teams. So uh, it's been a it's been a long journey, and it's uh, it's. Uh, I'm very honored to to finish it up with, with this. When you retire, you think you're like hockey is over, and and uh, you move on in life, and and uh, then years later this happens, and you're, you're able to do it with your brother, and uh, and uh, go through this uh, this ceremony again. It's uh, yeah, we 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 realize we've been extremely 
fortunate and lucky. But uh, I also think that because we played together, I think we pushed each other to to be the best place we could be, and, and that's part of why we're why we're here too. Two stars of the Kamloops Blazers won major awards today. Dylan Garand was named the CHL Goaltender of the Year. And Logan Stankoven was Player of the Year in Canada. He had a little added incentive this past season because he was upset he wasn't drafted until the second round last year by Dallas. Um, you know, I just tried to go out there this season and kind of prove the doubters wrong and, and keep that in the back of my mind. And, um, you know, I think that just kind of led to some of my su- success and then obviously my teammates too. Um, you know, I played with some great linemates this year, so uh, they played a huge role as well. Well, speaking of awards, Lions quarterback Nathan Rourke was named a player of the week for the second time this year, which is no surprise when you beat teams by over 40 points, two straight games, and complete most of your passes, you will get Lots of love. All right. Wimbledon. Felix Oje Aliasim, number six coming in against Max Cressy. First round action. Felix won the first set, lost the second set 6-4, and never won another set. Tough day for Felix. He is out. Four-set loss to Cressy. His old buddy, Denis Shapovalov, was in trouble in his match against Arthur Rinderneck, but... Shapovalov would rally. Wins the fourth set to tie it up 2-2. And then easily wins the fifth set 6-1. Bianca Andreescu won her match as well today. So there you go. Two out of three. Ain't bad. All right. Thanks, Squire. Cheering them on for sure. All right. Coming up, a shining example of Vancouver's history and the artists bringing it back to life. Next. This is BC with Jay Durant is brought to you in part by Van Cam Freightways. BC owned and operated for 75 years. Jordan Armstrong standing by with a preview of what's coming up tonight on Global News at 11. Jordan? And Sophie, all eyes on Saanich tonight on what is still an evolving situation at this hour. The bomb squad is dealing with a possible explosive device found inside a vehicle linked to the shootout suspects. Of course, we're watching that as well. Three of the six injured officers are expected to be released from hospital this evening. Plus, the threat of rising water has sparked a new evacuation alert affecting low-lying areas of northwest Langley. Details tonight on Global News at 11. Sophie. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jordan. Right now, Metro Vancouver's history as a city of neon has faded over the years, but now many of those heritage neon signs are being brought back to life. And it takes special skill to restore them. As Jay Durant shows us in This is BC, they will soon be displayed at a prominent downtown location. Concept Neon has been swamped with orders from the TV film industry, but they've also been working on restoring a number of vintage neon signs that came from the Museum of Vancouver. It's kind of our favorite thing to work on, simply because we're sort of uh, saving neon signs that otherwise might wind up in the landfill. Chloe and his team have revived close to a dozen. Heritage works from the height of Vancouver's neon glory. Night comes to the city and brings a curtain of magic old relics that had just been sitting in the museum storage. The after dark menu of where to dine and what to do is written in brilliant letters along the brightest street in Canada. Installation of these signs begins later this year at the old downtown Canada Post location. Part of a new public display on the ground floor of the Quadrille development which will be home to Amazon. I can't wait to see a lot of the, sh- the light shine into the streets again because they're going to be huge windows that like you'll see the signs through. 
Some of these signs haven't been seen for decades, like the dragon's head from the Dragon Inn Smorgasbord on Kingsway in Burnaby, and the aristocratic restaurant that was once in South Granville. People growing up in Vancouver know what that restaurant meant to that area, and uh, it's, it's just iconic. After more than 10 years, the neon exhibit at the Museum of Vancouver will close for good at the end of June. Some of these signs will go up in the new display, along with several others that Concept Neon has brought back to life. Uh, the heritage signs tend to be exciting, uh, creative, uh, fun, and, it's, and it feels great to keep them alive. Shining bright again in a new public space that everyone will be able to see. It's so exciting. I can't wait to go see. I'm going to take my mom, my grandma, we'll all go down there. And it'll be so wonderful to be able to say, you know, I worked on that piece. I bent that unit. I would say we're all very lucky that this is happening because it looks like it's going to be amazing. So many great pieces there and a lot of new pieces that no one's seen before. Pretty exciting. Jay Durant, Global News. Good one to check out. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. You know what we need? We need a neon global sign. I or do agree. we have one somewhere? You know what? It wouldn't surprise me if it was up in storage somewhere. We should check oh, with Larry. Our director says there might be one outside our building, like at the front door. But oh, <laughs> never seen <laughs> it. Which would be the so. place for it. But it's not the same. No. Not like that. No, they got to bring all that neon back. Those old shots of Granville Street are amazing. Yeah. And the beauty of it is you can see it through the fog. Like if there is, you know, low light or whatever, they right. just you, they pop. There's all a right. safety factor to it. There is. Okay, no fog in the forecast, but uh, yeah, we had a bit of a switch today before the sunshine comes back, right Yvonne? Yes, so we've got a bit of a blip in the forecast. We are tracking a few showers this evening, a slight chance for an isolated thunderstorm also in the mix, and then we'll take that in towards our Wednesday. We'll see a fair bit of cloud cover tomorrow, much cooler in comparison to what we've been seeing over the past few days. Highs will be up to 18 degrees and then it improves once again in rebound. Thursday, Friday, leading in towards the long weekend so far, we've got some sunshine and temperatures will be warming up once again. I don't usually say this, but I'm okay with the cooler, cooler temperature. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm with you. Easier to sleep. Yeah. All right, folks, thanks very much for watching. It's been a heavy news day. Our thoughts are with uh, all men and women in uniform after what happened in Saanich. Have a great night. Good night, all. <laughs>